Thank you, guys. Um, well, we have had some great opportunities to worship today, and John and his team have definitely led us um, to, the, um, to an empty tomb this morning. So on Easter, it's been traditional for a couple thousand years for um, uh, Christians to greet each other in a specific way. Um, I, I will say, He is risen, and you will say, He is risen indeed. All right, you ready? Good morning. He is risen. That's just, that's just fun every time. Um, and so uh, that's, that is part of, of the tradition for Christians for a long time. And we're going to talk about um, a little bit about that. Um, if you're a guest here, especially if you're a first-time guest or, or you've not been here in a while or whatever, one of the things um, that, we, that we clearly um, is, is a thing here is that we don't connect necessarily. We don't connect um, sacredness to, like, for example, clothing. Um, we, we don't wanna, we've got so many families with young kids, especially, that any little thing we can take out of the way to make their Sunday morning less stressful, um, when we strive for that. And, uh, and so, obviously, you can be um, holy and sacred um, living and uh, be dressed casually. Um, also, you can be dressed um, really nicely if you want to, just so you'll know. Like for, for years, my, uh, my teenage son would come in a suit on a regular basis. Um, again, I think as an act of rebellion, uh, he would come in a suit. And so uh, it was, um, you, you are welcome to do that. That can be holy and sanctified as well. What matters, as you're going to see in today's sermon, what matters is that Jesus knows our hearts. Um, and so Jesus, Jesus knows what's in the hearts of men and women. And uh, sometimes the Sunday best thing that many of us, like me, grew up with uh, made it more, much more difficult to be a Christian, much more difficult to follow Christ um, because the presentation of, hey, you've got to have your act together. You've got to be perfect on Sunday morning. You've got to make sure um, that you're cleaned under your nails before you get here on Sunday morning or whatever was, was kind of overdone sometimes. And it made it feel like the whole idea of Sunday morning church was a performance. And that's not... We're not concerned about that. Um, we, we take Jesus Christ very, very seriously, um, but we don't take ourselves very seriously at all. So um, we are glad you're here. And I'll also comment, uh, just for those of you who are here, um, kid, no, no, you're good, you know, but the um, uh, uh, kid noises we celebrate here, okay? So, so that's a, a it's, it's, we, we know there are churches all over America that um, are desperate um, and would, would desperately give almost anything to hear the noises of children um, in their church. And so we, we celebrate that. Don't, don't let it distract you or bug you. Um, if, 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 that's, if there's something back in your brain that makes you want to you know, look over and glare at a mom or something like that, um, check your own heart. Check your own heart. I think that's where the problem will be found. So um, uh, anyway, we, we sell it, and, and I hope it doesn't distract you. It doesn't, it doesn't me. I've got seven. Listen, I could, I could sleep through it. it would, you wouldn't... They could be bouncing up and down on me, and I could be sound asleep. So preaching's a breeze compared to what I usually do with kids all over me. So we are, we are proud to have um, those noises here. And so uh, anyway, that's, that's another side comment. And we did mention, we are going to mention a little bit more. I do want you to be in prayer and consideration. This, this next weekend is our Disciple Now weekend. It's a time of intense discipleship and focus for our teenagers, 6th through 12th. And many of you are going to be hosting in your homes. It's logistically the most massive thing you can possibly imagine a church doing just about. And, uh, and it's crazy what all has to be done. Please be in prayer. There will be lots of kids and friends. Some of them will not know Jesus for sure. Many of them who will know Jesus have never really followed him um, through their life. This is a great time for that. So please, um, please be in prayer for this weekend. And uh, today is the last day if you've got a teenager to sign up for that. 
Um, but, but really what we're talking about here is this, this is a big weekend for our youth to develop cohesion and unity and, and purpose under following Christ. So um, please, please this week, um, especially you members out there, be in prayer for them. And um, so we, we're going through, we're still going through the book of John. I mean, we're just moving right along. Um, we didn't take a break from that for Easter Sunday or anything. We're moving straight through the book of John, counting on the Holy Spirit to guide us um, as we hit the right places. And in fact, um, once again, um, God has been faithful in today's, uh, the, the material we're covering today is going to be, um, it fits <laughs> kind of beautifully. And so um, that was less intentional than we would like to pretend. Um, and so we're very glad that, that God has done that. And also there's going to be other people. So a joy for me also is to sit out here and hear someone preach. Um, and especially through something like John. And so um, we've got numerous pastors and former pastors and others and, and teachers in our, in our midst and others in the community. And, uh, and I've sent out emails saying, hey, what's your favorite thing to teach in the book of John? And so um, don't be surprised if there's Sundays periodically when uh, even though I'm here, I'm going to be down here because and, and, uh, I love listening to, um, to good preaching. And, uh, and you will too, you'll discover uh, when these guests come in. You'll be like, hey, that's good preaching. So um, on, now looking at John 2... Um, well, if you remember last week, Jesus had just used a braided set of cords, the ropes, and he had driven animals and people out of the temple area. Um, this is a big deal, and we're gonna, I'm going to kind of paint a picture here in a minute for more clearly what's going on there. The disciples remembered a, a thing that David had said about himself, King David had said back in the Psalms, that zeal for your house consumes me. Now keep in mind, this is King David who did not have a temple. Um, he wanted to build a temple. He was excited about building a temple, and God told him no. Um, instead, David's son is the one who built the temple, and so, so with, Sol, with, with Solomon's temple. Um, but David was passionate about the temple. He was passionate about God's house and the idea of having that. Well, Jesus here, in the very first Passover of his ministry, goes, and he is at the temple. This is a big deal. At this time in history, Maybe 100,000, depending on who you, listen, who you read, between 100,000 and maybe into the millions of people went to Jerusalem during the Passover, went to the temple during the Passover. This would have been huge. It would have been massive. And here he is, the passion that he has for God's house. Not, as you're going to see, not for the grandeur of the temple. That's not what gets him fired up. Um, it's going to be other things. We'll get there. This word zeal that we see, it comes from a Greek word that actually is the name of one of the Greek gods. Um, this is the spirit of rivalry and jealousy and zeal and anger and, and passion. And he and his siblings stood in the presence of Zeus himself. One of the siblings you'll recognize is a goddess named Nike. Recognize that? She was the goddess of tennis shoes and basketball. Um, now, actually, a victory um, but and her little symbol, a little no. That's the um, uh, anyway. That's that's one of the gods who was there. When it, it was says it was said of Zelos, when he intervenes, it is grievous. When when Jesus in zeal, and they're using that Greek concept. When Jesus is is when his zeal is triggered, when his passion, his anger is triggered. Sure enough, it is grievous to those who are there. They receive the the hard end of the whip, so to speak. His anger, however is not destructive. This is going to be one of the differences we'll run into between the anger of Jesus Christ and typically our anger. Um, our anger is typically destructive. Not so with His. His builds. Um, our anger is rarely holy anger. 
Our anger is usually self-absorbed, narcissistic, domineering, controlling anger. It is anger that's meant to tear others down, to give, our, to give room for our will to be done, to give room for our agenda to be lived out, versus the idea of constructive anger. It's, it's tough for us as humans. This isn't the only time Jesus gets angry, by the way. In Mark chapter 3, it says, again, he entered the synagogue, and a man there was with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good, to do harm, to save a life, or to kill? So here you have the Pharisees and the religious leaders, sometimes just called the Jews. That doesn't mean the whole population. It means these religious leaders. And they were literally in the synagogue waiting to see if Jesus would heal on the Sabbath. Not caring about the man whose hand was withered. Not caring about what happened with him. They just wanted to try to trap Jesus. This infuriates Jesus. He is so frustrated with them and so angry with them. So he turns and asks them a theological question. All right, you're here for this reason. Let me just, let's call it out. Is it okay to do good on Sabbath or not? What do you think? And as if, as if their mindset was not wicked enough, now, on top of that, they're cowards. So they're cowards in the midst of this, and they won't even answer him. And it says, um, they were silent. Verse 5, he looked around at them with anger grieved at the hardness of their hearts. And he said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and the hand was restored. Jesus here is, is angry at, at how their anger and their bent is destructive. Jesus' anger is constructive. It is healing here. How dare you do this? So here we are in 2.18. He's just driven these animals and the people. He's overturned the money tables. He's, he's demanded they take all the birds out. And here he is scattered around with all this big mess, money on the ground, animals being chased out. And the Jews come up to him and say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Now here's what they're thinking. They're thinking Jesus needs their permission to do this. So they, the, the correct process for this was you go in, you declare yourself a prophet. Then these religious leaders, they test you. You do a sign. You do some kind of wonder. You do something miraculous. And then they evaluate you. We give you a certain you know, points for style, maybe, and, and exactly what you do and how impossible it would be to do otherwise. It's biblical connectedness, etc. That's what we have you do. That being said, then they're going to say, okay, well, we've decided that you are a prophet. You have our stamp of approval. Now what is it that you want to do? What's your message for everybody? Notice that this is, this is leaders coming running in after the event has happened telling Jesus he needs their permission to do what he's already done. This is a little bit of a comic moment. As these people step up, as they come up and say, show us the sign for doing these things before you do this. And Jesus is going like, um, I mean, it's done. I already did it. See the money on the ground? You see the animals? No, you don't. I drove them out. They're coming now to say, you require our authority to do this. And he's going, apparently, I don't. And I didn't. It's done. You're a little late to the party, boys. They've shown up now to demand a sign. He's already done this thing. They missed their chance if they ever had one. He's not open to their evaluation. See, they had missed the wedding that we saw in the last chapter when Jesus, when Jesus turned water into wine. We've seen a miraculous sign because we saw, got to see what happened. We've seen a miraculous sign. We know Jesus can perform these miracles. We know that he's not just some wise dude. 
He actually is God on earth doing these mighty things. So they see him declaring himself as a prophet. They demand a sign. They want proof that God is behind him. When he's already done it, Jesus doesn't seem to be in the mood to perform for them. He's not in the mood to whatever it is that they want him to do. He doesn't seem to want to do that. Instead, Jesus is going, they demand a sign. And you need to hear that Jesus is going to regularly, in other places in the gospel, he's going to refer to people who need a sign as being faithless, adulterous, and evil. Twice in Matthew, Jesus actually uses the phrase, he describes these people as an evil and adulterous generation who seeks a sign. So what does it say about us when we seek a sign? Again, it's not enough just, it's not just that they seek it. It's not just that they would like it. Maybe all of us would have times that we would like to have a miracle. We would like to see something supernatural done. And I don't think it's wrong to ask. Um, we see too many examples of people like Gideon, who they ask, they ask, hey, could we, could I see a sign? Could I see a miracle? Could I see evidence? But it's done humbly. God, if you wouldn't mind, would you do this? This is not the same thing. Many of you have seen, uh, you know that I interact with the atheist world and the neo-atheist kind of agenda right now. And one of the things some of them will say is that they, they demand a sign. They need, to see a, they need to see a miracle. Then they'll be convinced when they see something miraculous happen. One, I will tell you, I don't believe that. Two, I'm going to explain that in a second. Two, I want you to hear this. Our belief is just a, it's just a, a, a psychological state. Um, our faith our faith. It's a stance of our heart and mind. It's, it's not, it's, we don't declare things true. Things are either true or they're not. De- independent of us. Whether we know they're true or not. We could all get together and vote on something that's true, and we could all decide that it's not true, and it wouldn't change that it's true. Truth transcends us. It doesn't need us. It's a character of God's to be true. So it's, it's, it, trans, it, it precedes us. It's before the creation of time. God was true. Truth is, is what he knows. This is, this is the truth. We accept it or not. And that depends kind of on where we are sometimes. Some days it's a little bit slippery for us. Even if we've put our faith in God, there are days when our faith is weak or poor. We aren't very faithful people. We, we lose track. We lose hold. We get distracted. What we ate, how we slept, whether we get knocked in the head. When someone asks, and this is one of, the, one of their questions, when you get asked this question, here's a good way to answer it. When they ask, what would it cause you to not believe there's a God? And the answer is, I don't know. I mean, maybe if I get hit hard enough in the head with a brick, that might do it. I might get the right type of damage to my brain that would make me not believe. Maybe if I got Alzheimer's or schizophrenia, maybe if I developed one of those at some point, what the heck does that have to do with anything? Fortunately, God is God and God saves because of Him and our psychological state does not make that happen. This is, this is what we're dealing with here. This is, a, this is Almighty God proclaiming the truth. You can accept it or not. We can accept it or not. It doesn't change the truth of it. I think that's part of why it is a childlike faith that, that, that causes us to turn to God when even if all our questions aren't answered sometimes. And listen, you know me, I love I love the rational answers. I love the debate. I love that. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It requires too much blind faith on my part. To, I think the evidence very much so supports and the most rational options to believe there is a God. That's one of the main reasons I do believe there is a God because I think the rational option it is the rational option. 
That being said, you certainly can choose not to, no matter what. How many, I mean, I don't know the first thing about algebra. I took like four years of the stuff. I couldn't do, I couldn't balance an equation unless I can multiply both sides times zero. That's about the only shot I've got. And that got marked wrong every time. And I'm telling you, that follows the rules. I'm, just, I'm a little angry about that. I've got issues with uh, all those getting counted wrong. You said if I did the same thing to both sides. Somebody tell me to move on. All right. Um, okay, so when we demand a sign, if you're weak in your faith and you ask God to show you that he is there, there's nothing wrong with that. If you ask God to show you, that's great. But he's not under your evaluation. This isn't a situation where, you, where he's now... See, that's, that's one of the hard things about this is God opposes the proud. And when we come to him proudly demanding something of him, we should expect him to resist us. Who he exalts is the humble. And when we come humbly and we ask God, that's, that's a different thing. Look at, listen to this parable. I'm going to read through the whole thing. But the parable, this, don't build a lot of theology on this parable. It's a parable. There's a lot of things going on here. I want to get to the point of the parable. But in order to do so, I want you to hear the whole thing. This is, this is Jesus teaching in Luke 16. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day, sumptuously every day. And at his gate he had laid a poor man, was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. And moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame." But Abraham said, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received all these good things and Lazarus in like manner bad things. Now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. Now again, don't build too much theology. This, this, is, a, this is a parable. Um, you have to fit, fit it in with the rest of Scripture in order to find out what's being taught here. But let me show you the point of the... This is the point Jesus is making is right here. It's for those of us who demand a sign. Abraham said, they have Moses. and the, uh, scary. He said, I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And Abraham said, if they do not hear from Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone was to rise from the dead. This is the point Jesus is making in all of this parable, meant to grab your attention, is this. If you can't believe without a miracle, you will not believe with one. This, this is the truth of it. Um, Ginger and I had good friends when we were at another church, and the husband was said, I will believe as soon as I see a miracle. That's what will do it. And we had a young woman, about an 11-year-old girl in the church, who got very, very sick. And um, I don't remember the details of it, but I remember it was a urinary tract thing, and she was extremely sick and, and expected to die. And the church, the pastor called that whole family in, and they, they laid hands on her and anointed her with oil, and they did everything and prayed. And this was not some health and wealth church. This wasn't the type of thing. This wasn't a Sunday service type of thing normally. And we, we pulled, they pulled everybody in, and they prayed for this person. Now, Listen, God heals sometimes, and sometimes God doesn't heal, and, and there's no easy measure on this, and anyone who says there's an easy measure on it is lying to you or has something to sell. But, but they, well, they laid hands on her, and they prayed for her, and for whatever reason, God decided to respond. And literally the next week when she went back to the doctor, she was healed. 
She still had some, what's interesting, she still had some side symptoms, but the main thing that was killing her was just gone. And, and we all came back as a church and celebrated, and the pastor sat down with this man and said, you were here through this whole process. And the guy said, yeah, that's not the kind of miracle I meant. See, this is, this is the deal. If we think that that's what it's going to take is for God to jump through our hoop, we're wrong. That's what you think, you're wrong. You have plenty. In John 6, Jesus is going to feed, feed the 5,000 men plus women and children. And the next day, the same crowd is going to come to him and say, hey, we really would like to believe in you, but you, we need you to perform a miracle. The very same people. And Jesus is going to say, well, you got any miracle in mind? And I kid you not, they're going to say, yeah, could you make food for us? The exact thing he'd done the day before. They don't want a savior. They want a catering service. They want someone just to take care of them. They don't want to have to work at this. If you're demanding something from God, good luck with your pride. There's plenty of evidence to believe. Plenty of sufficiency. Sufficient evidence. It's all there. So here's what we get. Jesus gives them the marker of a miracle rather than the miracle. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, You destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And the Jews said, It's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it up in three days? Now, this is going to stick in their minds. Jesus saying this is going to stick in their minds. Three years later when he's on trial in Matthew 26. Now the chief priest, this is three years, three Passovers later. Now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking false testimony against Jesus. They might put him to death, but they found none. Though many false witnesses came forward, at last two came forward and said, This man said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. They remember this. This sticks in their head. Their memory, of course, isn't perfect. They're, mis- they're misquoting him a little bit. Um, they're missing the point. But three years later, this is still stuck in their head because they are very, very proud of their temple. I just tell you, they are very, very proud. Josephus, the Jewish historian, claimed that Herod's temple was completed about A.D. 64. So about 30 more years past this date in John 2 before it was finished. Um, the number, by the way, is, is extremely accurate. Uh, that's the, he says A.D. 64. Keep in mind, so Jesus, um, Jesus was, Herod started the temple about 16 years before the birth of Christ. At about age 30, it has been under construction for a total of 46 years. It wasn't finished for another 34 more years or so. Fits the, the historical account, the historical Roman account counts pretty much matches up identically with um, the gospel account here. It's not the purpose of this passage, but that's pretty impressive. But Jesus is standing here in the temple. The grandeur of the temple is something beyond us. We got a picture, I think, of the, the temple, um, and no one knows for sure. There weren't any photographs taken um, before it was destroyed. But, but based on the descriptions, and, the, and there's lots of them, it would look something like this. You can see the little people, little speck people wandering around. Um, this is on a hilltop. So, so the, the Herod had this rebuilt, and the first thing he did was build giant retaining walls and then put in dirt behind them to make a massive plaza. It's about the size of 20 football fields on the top. And it's 90 feet. Its base is 90 feet above street level. So if you're down at the, at the street, the first century streets, you're looking up the wall 90 feet to where the temple, the flat temple mount was. That's impressive 2,000 years ago. Um, the size of the stones and the retaining wall, some of them um, are among the most heavy things ever lifted 
or moved by humans, ever. Um, Some of them are ten times the size of the pyramid stones. The series of buildings is 180 feet long. Excuse me, the main building is 180 feet long. The series is longer. It's 70 feet wide and amazingly about 180 feet tall. It is covered, it was covered in gold. So the Romans, who you know knew how to build things, and the Greeks, who knew how to build things, would come to Jerusalem to experience what they considered one of the wonders of the world, this temple. All of those surfaces that look like they've got brass on them, not brass, not copper, gold. There's so much gold built into the temple that when Titus destroys the temple and takes the gold back to Rome, the value of gold is cut in half in the entire Roman Empire because of the glut of gold coming out of the Jewish temple. Now, here's maybe the most amazing thing. So, he, yeah, there's a, there was debate for a while as to exactly whether Titus was involved in that, and then they discovered the Arch of Titus, and that seems pretty, uh, pretty clear. The evidence that's in Rome as they celebrate him taking back the showbread table and the menorah. Um, here's maybe most shocking. Jesus, in this passage, is not talking about this temple. He's standing in this temple, so of course they think he is. Destroy this temple and I'll build it in three days. But here's what's wild. Jesus does at other times talk about the destruction of this temple. So I told you it's finished about A.D. 64. Six short years later, the Romans are going to tear it down stone by stone in A.D. 70. They spend 60 years building it, and they enjoy it for six years before the Romans destroyed it. So Jesus warned about that too, but in this passage, that's not what he's talking about. And John, being the apostle who loves to make sure we understand what's going on, sometimes he speaks a little bit, um, a little bit of stating the obvious, but he's letting us know in verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, and his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word Jesus had spoken. There we are. Notice, this is huge. The disciples did not understand the significance of these words here. They didn't understand the significance of his words later. They didn't even understand the significance of his words when Jesus died. What happened when Jesus died? What did the disciples and followers do? They scattered. They ran for the hills. They went, they went, they were not, oh, well, I guess we picked the wrong guy. Yet another Jewish Messiah killed by the Romans happens every day. We must have picked the wrong one. That's a huge bummer. These were not courageous or bold people. They weren't dedicated. They weren't all that devoted. They thought Jesus was dead. They had no concept he was coming back. They were scattered when they thought he, when he was killed. In fact, here's what's wild. How many of them, so it's, and by the way, Jesus gets, at this point early on, Jesus still has kind of a Yoda-ish effect in his teaching, right? He's kind of like, eh, he's not totally clear. I destroy this temple and in three days I'll rebuild it. By the end of his life, he's no longer subtle. He tells them, the Romans are going to arrest me and the Jews are going to arrest me and then they're going to kill me and then I'm going to come back from the grave three days later. And they still don't get him. They still have no idea what he's talking about. Their disciples are like comic relief in the gospels. If you're not reading it that way, that's, that's a, how many of them were there when Jesus rose from the grave. So Jesus comes out of the grave. Ta-da! How many of his disciples? Zero. Not one. Not one got the point. They weren't there. A handful of women show up and kind of catch him in the act of resurrecting. 
But that's not why they were there either. What were they there for? What were they looking for? A dead body. Guys, this is Jesus' mother. His mother shows up Sunday morning at some point expecting a dead body. No one saw this coming. No matter how many times he showed them, Mary and Mary and Mary and however many Marys there were, they all showed up on Sunday morning. I never can keep track. I literally, guys, I'm not kidding. There's a woman who's an expert on the women of the New Testament, and I always have to email her. Every time there's Marys described, I'm like, now which Marys are? I can't. Anyway, so, so a bunch of the Marys showed up there, and, and there's... And Jesus shows up, and they're stunned. by they've, and, and one of them gets to see him, and the rest see an empty tomb. And they go back going, hey, guys, did, did he tell you guys he was going to be not in the tomb in three days? Did, did anyone see this coming? No one. And these, this group of cowards, something's going to happen to them to turn them into world changers who risk their lives every day until finally someone catches them and kills them one after the other. Something fantastic happened. Something outside of the ordinary. Listen, something more impressive than feeding 5,000 people, that didn't do it for them. Something more impressive than Jesus walking on the water, that didn't do do it for them. What is it that finally convinced them? It was this Easter resurrection thing that Jesus said he was going to do. In fact, I'm going to connect these pieces together. In verse 23, now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Remember how I said belief, the psychological state? Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew people and needed no one to bear witness about, about, and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. This is wildly insulting. You understand that for our race, this whole sentence is insulting. Jesus did not entrust himself to people because he knew people. He knows what's going on inside of people. He knows the internal workings of us. He knows our thoughts. He knows our mixed motives. He has all this attention. He starts developing fame. Like I said, this is in the temple. This is during Passover. Hundreds of thousands of people. He's now done all this action. Everybody's now paying attention to him. And he does not trust this. Whatever signs he does that convinces people... He doesn't entrust himself to them because he knows people. You ever met any people? Isn't this your experience? That just when you put your faith in people, the rug gets torn out from under you? It's amazing the good things people can do. I I love the humanist mindset from that perspective. Man, look look at all the great things humans can do. When we come together, when we put our minds to it, we can do some pretty awesome things right up until we drop the ball. Right up until we stab you in the back. Right? Right up until we we admit that we didn't really want to help. Right up until you cost us just a little more than we're willing to pay and then we're done. Right? Right up until you scratch the surface a little bit and you get us a little frustrated, you get us a little angry, and all of a sudden we're justified in whatever we do or whatever we say. Yes, it is amazing what God has done in us and what God does with us, and and people are pretty cool. But the truth is, God knows our heart. And if you could read, okay, can you, I hope most of you are able to read your own motives. I know a certain percentage of you probably can't. But for the majority, you can check your own motives. When you check your own motives, do do they always smell rosy? 
Do you do something just sometimes because of the, you want the accolades, you want the likes, you want the little emojis? You want that approval? Anybody? Just me. Fame and attention and adulation from humans. This is key. Fame and attention and adulation from humans cannot be trusted. Today, you're everything. Tomorrow, you're nothing. The anger of humans is about drawing attention to ourselves and demanding that people change for us because we're so important. It's ridiculous how foolish our anger is. Our anger is so destructive and so foolish. It makes no sense. We hit our head on a cabinet door and a sane response would be to say, Ouch, that hurts. Would someone give me a hug? That would be a sane thing to do. Instead, instead we say, Who left the stupid cabinet door open? As if that makes any sense. Our anger is destructive. Our anger is, our anger is about feeling better about ourselves in that moment, blaming somebody else for our own mess-ups. and our own mess- But Jesus' anger is constructive. It builds. A whole generation of the fact that human adoration cannot be trusted, a whole generation of you are in denial of this. And I actually think it's more like three generations. But the most recent generation can't seem to hide it. Young people, all of your Facebook or Pinterest or Instagram or YouTube fame becomes hatred and disgust in a day. You cannot trust all these little likes. The next day, they'll hate you. They will, or worse, ignore you. And as I wrote that down, I thought, you know what? Older people, all of your Facebook, Pinterest, and Instagram fame becomes hatred and disgust and worse silence the next day. It can't be trusted. You can't build anything on it. We are not that type of race. It's why we're so offended when we post something that we think is so clever and someone responds negatively. And the next thing you know, we are up in arms. And we have lost our relationship to Jesus Christ completely. And now we are worldly as we can possibly be in just a few seconds. Jesus is not impressed by us as humans, nor should he be. Again, if you've ever met any of us, you would know that. That we... we are not to be trusted with this. It was a, it was a, a really a, a, a moment that stood out to me. Um, uh, I was actually at our academy here, and um, a, a guy's being a, a, a very famous, kind of a, a local hero football star that everyone knew in the like late 70s, and, and I mean, he was everything, like a, a, a god on earth, and and now here he is. I see him being pushed around in a wheelchair. His knee's so blown out he can barely walk, and I mean, he looked, he looked almost like a homeless person, and it was, it was heartbreaking to me as I began to realize who it was. And then other people began to realize who it was. So then mo- even more sad to me, people start running around and grabbing footballs off the shelf and running and lining up with him and asking him to sign their football. And then they, the instant he signs it, they run over to the checkout counter and they buy their football and leave the store. And I just thought, man, he's just, he's just nothing to them. He's just something that can perform right now. He's a... He's a He's a tool or a, just something they can go, now they can get a football at home with. And here he is having blown his knees out for us and, and no one really seems to care. It was just heartbreaking to me to see the, 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 the difference between, man, this person has all the adulation of humans for a short period of time and now where is he? No one knows. And that just, that just struck me as, as, as such the... the us, us investing in human adoration is investing in wind. It's going to go away. All of us. All of us. It's so rare for even a famous book to be read 40 years after the death of the author. 
And by the way, he doesn't care. Or she. They don't care. All this attention, and we are fighting for it and spending so much hours for it. And Jesus, is, Jesus was smart enough at the time. Jesus knows what's in the hearts of men. He's not going to entrust himself to that. Right, I get that you're all big fans today. That's great. Let me know what you think tomorrow. This is, this is a great insight for us to recognize. Praise God that it is Jesus who is faithful to us because we aren't very good at being faithful to him. This is, that's, a, that's a powerful recognition that his anger builds us up. His passion, his zeal is constructive. It is holy. You tear down, I build up. You destroy this house, in three days I'll build it back. My heat and my anger, that is my sign. My ability to rebuild what you tear down. And in the end, you'll kill me and I'll come back. There's the proof, all the proof you'll need. That's his sign. Jesus knows what's in our hearts. He knows the fear and anger and predatory thinking. He knows our lusts and our addiction, our lies and our facades. He knows what's in the hearts of men. He knew from the beginning all the way through this. This is the last thought I want to leave you with. This is, this is an amazing thing. There's a, um, uh, a worship song about, uh, that uses the word reckless in it. John and I talked about. And uh, it's, a, it's a great song in so many ways. It's one of my favorite thoughts that um, Brennan Manning used to say in, in Ragamuffin Gospel and other books references the reckless raging fury that is called the love of God. I'm, I love the poetic language of that. Sometimes we're so stilted on our understanding of God's love rather than recognizing he's crazy about us. So if you've, if you've checked out at some point, check back in here for the last couple of sentences. This idea of being, um, the, the word reckon, to measure, to wreck means to measure. And so to say that Jesus' love for us is reckless is technically not true. It would be impressive if he signed a blank check and said, I don't know what this is going to cost me, but I love you anyway. Whatever it is, I'll have to pay it. Instead, Jesus knew exactly what it was going to cost him to love us. He knew exactly what was in the hearts of men. He knew how poor an investment we are. And with great joy, he sold everything to purchase us. That is the Jesus we're talking about. That's the God we're talking about. The God who sold everything. So knowing what he's getting, knowing what's going on, he did. So I want to I close our time here in prayer that we can be built up in him despite what we have torn down. In ourselves, especially in ourselves. That predator-prey thing that goes on in our hearts that God, that God can restore and heal. That he can do that. And come to be built back up. Come to have a life that includes a defeated death. Let me pray. Father, we're so grateful for the goodness that we get to celebrate, your faithfulness that we get to celebrate on Easter. Um, God, understanding your character, you found a way. And your perfect justice and your perfect righteousness and your flawless holiness, you found a way to save us who you know cannot be trusted, who are not faithful. And God, for all of the good things that we have, I assume because we're created in your image, the truth is, in the end, when we know our hearts, they're not very impressive. So I pray that you would help us to humbly come to you, that we would ask you to save us and make us right. 
to conform us to the image of your Son, that we could live a life worthy of the calling, that we could live a life worthy of being citizens of your kingdom, that we could live a life worthy of the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ. And as we fail, knowing that even as we tear down, he builds up. God, I pray that we will be rebuilt by the power of your awesome Son. And we pray this in his magnificent name. Amen.